Because I want to tell you how this session came about, just to give you a little context on why we're talking about discipleship in the small church context. I was at the Frugal Baptist Leadership Conference this past December, and Ron and I, we've known each other for many years. He said, hey, come, let's go sit down and talk. And so we were visiting, and, and uh, my wife and I have been to the D6 conference a handful of times. We haven't been in a, a few years, but I have uh, someone that's close to me that was at the one in 2022. And I was telling Ron about it, and he said, well, what did he think, right? He's eager for some feedback, and this is someone who's close to me. He was honest with me about it. He said it was very good. He said, except he felt like um, everything was geared primarily to large churches and their staffs. He, he said that the only significant critique he would have is that even though most churches in the United States are small, he felt like the content at the D6 conference was geared toward large churches and the staffs at large churches. So I shared that with Ron. Now look, I, I know that everything they do is applicable to churches of any size. I, I totally get that. And he, Ron's right about that. And D6 is, that's absolutely true of. But um, Ron took that to heart. He, he, this is why I love Ron and why I have great respect for him. His response was that clearly Randall House and D6 Family Ministries has dropped the ball somewhere. Not, not in a bad way, not negative. He wasn't defeatist, but like we've missed something. If we've got all these smaller churches, by the way, I'm going to try to use the word smaller instead of small. Small seems derogatory. It's not necessarily. My church is small, but, but smaller and larger. Those are the words I'm going to try to use. Don't call me out and shame me if I use other words, but smaller and larger. And even though our denomination is primarily smaller churches, not entirely, obviously, um, and, and even though D6 as a philosophy, it revolves around discipleship and especially generational discipleship, um, the, in the curriculum we use it at New Beginnings where I have the privilege to serve, many of our churches use it and it's applicable to churches of any size and yet still kind of the default mindset for a lot of folks is larger versus smaller. And so I do want to be clear about this. Um, today is not about Randall House. It's not about D6 Family Ministries. I, I say thank you to them for they've sponsored this, uh, this seminar, and Ron is a good friend, and this came out of a conversation with Ron. But uh, that's not what this is about. This is about discipleship and how your smaller church can make disciples. And so what often happens is we buy into this myth that smaller churches can't be quite as effective at making disciples as larger churches. Right? We, we get this inferiority complex. An acquaintance of mine named Carl Vaders, he wrote a book, he's written four or five books now, but his first one, self-published, was called The Grasshopper Myth. And he named it that because... Uh, as the children of Israel were about to cross in the promised land and, and the spies, when they came back and gave the report, they said, uh, we seemed like grasshoppers in their eyes. But then, then they said, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. Like We felt that way too. And we do that. I feel that way, which is how I know you probably do sometimes, right? The, the grasshopper myth, right? And so... Uh, by the way, I would recommend that book. I would recommend pretty much anything Carl writes. He's, his website is carlvaders.com, and there's a lot of good content there. Um, but your small church, my smaller church, can make disciples. 
And I think, uh, and I've come to believe, that not only can smaller churches effectively make disciples, but actually we have some advantages over some larger churches. And that was so helpful to me when I made that switch in my heart and mind. And it really took a lot of discouragement out of my life. Now, I got plenty of other discouragement, right? Don't, don't, I haven't got it all figured out. But this was really genuinely helpful to me. Um, the average Protestant church in the United States, the normal size church, um, the, what, do you, what do you think is the attendance on, an, on an, the average Sunday of the average Protestant church in the United States? Hmm? 40. 40. Anybody else? 120. 125. He's the closest. It's just under 75 people. Now, as free will Baptists, where do you think we fit into that? Now, I, I want to give you this caveat first. As a denomination, we don't track attendance. We track membership. For better or worse, that's what we do. Um, I know there are some churches that they keep their membership roles tight. And if you miss enough Sundays, they'll just write you off and, you're, and they don't count you anymore. And there's other churches that will run 30 on Sunday morning, but they got 150 on the roll. Right? And, and, and you never know that until it's business meeting time when there's a fight, right? And then they all show up and expect to be able to vote. Uh, not that I've ever seen that. Don't, anyway. <laughs> Where do you think we fit in if you were guessing based on our membership numbers the best we can extrapolate about attendance? We are um, between, it wavers between 70 and 75. We're almost on the money with the national average with a Protestant church. In other words, we're right in, as uh, George Costanza said on Seinfeld, we're right in the meaty part of the curve, right? We're right in the middle of it. And, and so we're, what you experience in your local church is not atypical to what other local churches around your community and around the country are experiencing. It doesn't, by the way, this is all Protestants. It doesn't matter, it's average is the most liberal and the most conservative. It's just numbers. These are just statisticians putting this together. But I think it's important data for us to understand. I, I had a friend that I, I have a side job working in a local funeral home, and we were at a funeral service, and a funeral director who's a member of a local uh, Baptist church in our community, a large church. Uh, I was doing some research several years ago on small church ministry, and I asked him about these numbers. And he said, oh, it's got to be small. It can't be more than about 400 or so. Yeah, I responded like you. I was, I was somewhere between disbelief and laughter and like, what is wrong with you? And, and, and I told him, it's just under 75. He said, man, our choir's bigger than that. My Sunday school class is bigger than that. I said, I understand, but this is, why, this is why so many people have a skewed perception of what the local church typically looks like. Okay, I'll move on because I could do that all day. Um, we're right in, the, right in the middle of that. Um, a lot of times, though, leaders in normal-sized churches, and, I've, and not just pastors, and I've also come to the opinion that if a person is a regular, faithful church attender, they may not hold any kind of official role or position. If they are a regular, faithful church attender, they are a de facto leader in their church. People see their faithfulness, and they assume that they are leaders in that church. And they are. Now, they may not be good leaders, but they are an influence in that church. And so uh, whatever, whatever a person's role is, 
leaders in our local churches, in smaller, normal-sized churches, we feel like we're at a disadvantage when it comes to making disciples. And I want to argue that nothing is further from the truth. And again, I want to give us some examples of advantages. But, um, but before we do that, I want to start by dispelling the myth that larger churches are somehow superior to smaller churches. Without question, there are advantages to larger and disadvantages. There are advantages to smaller and disadvantages. There is no perfect sized church, just like there is no perfect church. However big or small your church is in attendance, uh, if you grow or if you shrink, there are going to be advantages. <laughs> like you're going to feel either relief in some ways, you're going to feel relief in some ways, and you're going to feel stress in other ways. And that's just the way it is because there's no perfect sized church just like there's no perfect church. But everything else being equal, nothing, uh, there's neither more or less right or wrong one over the other. I do remember a mega church pastor, who, uh, very popular a number of years ago, I heard him at a conference say, that he believed it was God's intention for every church to grow large. And he based it on the Pentecost narrative in Acts 2. Now, was he joking or was he serious? I don't know. But he talked about how, you know, all these people had gathered and, and come to Christ and joined the church, got added to the church daily. And, um, and this is a guy who had made a lot of money over the years selling books and seminars and workshops about breaking this barrier, the other barrier, 200, 500, I don't know how many barriers he came up with. But he knew how to break all of them. And, and he had made a lot of money doing that. So he talked about the day of Pentecost. What he, he, he somehow conveniently neglected to talk about Acts 8 and how the church was dispersed and sent away from Jerusalem in what we can assume by reading the rest of Acts was in fairly small groups. Because when you read about the rest of Acts and Paul's journeys and Peter's work, like you don't ever read about mega churches. In fact, we don't read about numbers at all to speak of. There's some, hint, there's some hints at things, but there's nothing really specific that I recall in the book of Acts about the size of any of these churches. I thought that was a pretty fascinating thing. It was also, that was something that was encouraging to me. So when it comes to discipleship and most any other area of ministry, I think one of the big mistakes we make can be traced back to our very understanding of the subject. So before we get into advantages or disadvantages, I want to be clear. When I talk about discipleship, I want to lay some ground, like define our terms, lay some groundwork, right? So let's talk about what discipleship actually is. One of my favorite things about discipleship is the fact that it shares a root word with the word discipline. Man, I'm going to tell you, when I figured that out, and it's obvious, right? It's right there in the word. But when I figured that out, it was like a light went off. Now, we tend to think about discipline in very negative terms. Parents discipline, we discipline our children, and what we usually mean by that is we punish them. We almost never use discipline in a household setting that it's positive. Come here, sweetie, let me discipline you. We, we know it's a, negative, it's a negative thing in our mind most of the time. Educators and government education agencies, they have student discipline plans that involve punishments. They involve removing them. It's suspension. It's behavior change. Like, it's all negative. It's all about changing behavior toward a positive fashion, away from negative to a positive fashion. It's almost always when a student has misbehaved. We even use discipline as a negative term at church. 
We don't even, we don't ever talk about, virtually never talk about church discipline as a positive thing. If we practice, most of us talk about it, not many of us practice it. But if we did, we don't even talk about it in positive terms, even though it really is. Remember the whole point of church discipline is restoration. It's not casting somebody out. And yet we always talk about it as if that's going to be the assumed final result is casting somebody out of the church. We think of discipline, when we hear discipline, we think negative terms. But in my mind, it's not a negative word. It, at worst, it's neutral. And all those things about discipline are true, but they're not the whole story. Discipline's a powerful tool for positively shaping people's lives. Scriptures command us to practice self-discipline. By the way, that's a part of discipleship. The Scriptures... Uh, there's so many places where we read in the scripture, but also just book after book after book about spiritual disciplines that lead to spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Along those same lines, discipleship involves discipline. It has to. So I want to take a few moments. I'm going to work through some things, some principles about discipleship, and then get into these advantages. So there's a lot, so many Bible passages we could get aspects of what discipleship looks like. I'm going to look at two we're going to start with the passage that we've all come to call the Great Commission, uh, Matthew 28, and I'm going to read verses 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. By the way, that's one of the most comforting verses in all of Scripture to me. If those eleven remaining disciples who were so faithful still met back up with Jesus and were so full of doubt, they were they. They worshiped him, but some doubted. That gives me great hope. But that's a whole other sermon, isn't it? Uh, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So some, some basic discipleship truths in there. Not just this command to make disciples. So first, discipleship is active and it's intentional. We don't accidentally make disciples. It just doesn't just happen. We have, to, we have to go in it wanting to do it. We have to plan to do it. We have to be intentional. We, um, we see the word go. I think that's what that means. I'm not a languages guy. I wish I was. I'm the worst at it. I'm almost about to conquer English one of these days. I might chase another one down, but um, I know there are a lot of people who want to interpret this, uh, the word go, as as you go, and you can make an argument for that. I'm not denying that, but I think there's a reason why virtually every translation has translated it go, not as you go. Again, as you go is appropriate. It's not inaccurate, but I think there's a reason why scholar after scholar, translator after translator, old translations, new translations. By the way, this is the NIV. It's, it's one of the most modern in terms of age. And, and it just says go. And so, there, so that implies a certain amount of intentionality. It has to be accurate. It has to be intentional. Discipleship involves teaching. It always involves teaching. It always involves teaching. Jesus said so. Teach. What do we teach? Well, we, we teach the basic gospel truths, the milk of the word. We move up to meet slightly meatier and slightly meatier and slightly meatier subjects. 
We've got, we go to teaching for us specifically our doctrine, our theology, the points that are made in our treaties, the, the things that our uh, scholars and theologians have written over the years, including uh, one of the books that went pretty quickly here today, that's Matt Pinson's more recent 40 Questions About Arminianism. And by the way, I don't know that there's another work on the subject of Reformed Arminianism that, we, that is typical in our denomination. I don't know if there's a better work out there than that one. So I, if you weren't able to get one of those, they, I'm, sure, I'm sure at the Randall House booth they'll have them. But, uh, so I encourage you to read that. But it includes teaching. It, it also includes baptism. Now, I'm not going to be that you've got to be baptized to be saved. I know better than that. But that command was still reasonably clear. And so I don't think he hung salvation on baptism, but I think he made it clear his intention is for us to baptize people who've trusted in him. So, so um, we should make it clear that baptism is an expectation of those who call themselves followers of Jesus. Another passage I want to run through real quick is Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we're just going to read the first nine verses, a little longer passage. And this is the, this is the passage art that the Randall House's D6 curriculum is the philosophy comes from. It's, These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me, as Moses, directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. Now, be paying attention to some of this. This is going to come back, right? This idea of your children and their children. You'll, you'll hear that theme again. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments I give you, that I give you today are to be on your hearts. It's important to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your homes and on your gates. I love this passage. I really wish that we could take the time for a deep dive. In fact, we would take days in a deep dive, and none of us wants that. Um, but there's some of those same themes that we found in the Great Commission are right here in Deuteronomy 6. In other words, Jesus didn't recreate the wheel when he said, go make disciples. He was hearkening back thousands of years to what God had always intended for his people, the pattern he'd always intended for his people to live out as they live out the Christian life, or as we, what we've come to know as the Christian life. One of those is that you know, we have to be active and intentional, right? He said, these are, the, these are the things God wants me most. He said, these are the things, these things, these are the laws, commands. This is what God has said for me to teach you. So there's intentionality there. That's important. In addition to those principles that we saw in the book of Acts, there's some other principles about discipleship here in Deuteronomy. One of those is that discipleship has an intergenerational element. It always has an intergenerational element, almost without exception. It's almost always someone who is more mature discipling someone who is less mature. 
Like that's natural. That makes completely sense. It's intuitive to us. Yet so often we completely disregard it. In fact, in a lot of churches, especially larger churches, and they'll put discipleship groups together, small groups together, and it will be a group, let's say a men's group, right, who they are all completely immature trying to disciple one another. Now, I'm not saying that no spiritual growth can happen there. It absolutely can happen there. But how much more could it happen if there was one man in the room, one man in the room who's a step ahead of the rest of them in his spiritual walk, who understood the scriptures just a little more, who had taken the time and had some study, right? Who had, there's, an, there's always an intergenerational element. Now, the, in Deuteronomy 6, it was your children and their children. In, in our world, it's often not necessarily familial relationships, but it's still intergenerational. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, another thing is that there's, a, this, there's both a structured and an unstructured element to discipleship. This is, this is one of the benefits, and I'm going to get ahead a little bit. Small churches, uh, large churches, if they're going to do discipleship, it has to be structured. There is no choice. When you've got hundreds or thousands of people that you're trying to disciple, you have, it has to be highly structured to the point where it's not relational. And I don't think you can truly make disciples if it's not relational. I think there has to be a relational element. And we'll get to that in a minute as well. Um, the other things, you know, there, there's some things in there that lead us to think that there's a structured element. He says that he's going to teach. These things God told me to teach you in, implies some structure. But then there's other unstructured. There's this whole life, this life-on-life approach, Right. When you get up, when you lay down, when you go for a walk, when you're doing the things of life that you're doing, that, that sort of has this implication that's unstructured. And so while there are other things we could point to, the last one I want to mention out of this passage is that discipleship has to lead to heart change. I think that's what verse 6 meant when it said, this command, these commandments I give to you today are to be on your hearts. He didn't just tell them to learn them. He didn't just tell them to memorize them. He did want them to memorize them. He did want them to learn them. He said, tie them to your hands and your forehead, put them on your doorpost. Like he wanted them to know them, but he said that they'll be on your hearts. And that is so much deeper. And, and if we're teaching someone and it doesn't lead to heart change, have we really taught them? I think it's a fair question that we have to ask. Okay. All of that leads to this question. What does all this have to do with the smaller church? I think it has a lot to do with the smaller church. So I want to share some discipleship principles with you that I think demonstrate an advantage for smaller churches. Now I do, before I finish this, I want to get in, I want to have a few little caveats, right? I'm going to, I'm going to hedge my bets just a little bit, right? Um, first, while most of these are pretty clearly rooted in biblical principles of discipleship. What I'm going to share are really based as much in my experience and, and, and in observation and, and, and things as they are in biblical, as they are biblical principles. I think, I think I can make a biblical argument for all of them. So I'm not backing away from that, but I'm just telling you, this is what I've seen work and not work. This has been my experience. Another caveat is that... Um, these smaller church discipleship principles, they're intended to be practical. This is not theoretical. And, and now, 
how that plays out at your church versus my church. There may be very different applications of that, but I still think it can be very practical. And then the last thing I'll say is that these are based on my understanding of Scripture, my experience in the local church. If you disagree, right, if you read the passage differently than I do, if you think I'm wrong, let's agree to disagree and move on, all right? We're still on the same team. We still want to make disciples. Okay, the first principle I want to share is that because true discipleship is relational, smaller churches can excel at making disciples. Now, there's a couple of assumptions in there, right? I think it's pretty obvious. One of those assumptions is that true discipleship has to be relational, right? But I, I think that's true. I think virtually every example, in, certainly in the New Testament, of of discipleship is almost, it's always in a context of some kind of relationship. I think we can make that as a strong biblical argument. But another assumption is that smaller churches are more relational. Now, I think that's definitely true of healthy smaller churches. And I know not every church, large or small, not everyone is healthy. Um, unhealthy smaller churches are probably more cliquish than they are relational. And we need to be careful not to confuse the two. <laughs> they are not the same thing. <laughs> Clicks will kill a church. They'll run it into the ground. They will prevent people from coming in. They'll prevent people from feeling welcome when they do attend. And they'll prevent people from being discipled. Relationships breed discipleship. Like if we've got healthy relationships in a healthy small church, I really believe that, that genuine discipleship is going to be one of the results of that. But I also believe that if, if the discipleship, if the process or the plan or whatever, however you've structured discipleship in your local church, if it's not inherently relational, it will not lead to heart change. And it will not really be discipleship. I, I really believe that. Relationship should be right in the wheelhouse, though, of the church, especially the, the smaller church. Like we, I mean, think, just think for just a moment about what your, your smaller church, the dynamics, right? When you walk in the room on a Sunday morning, right? And people are visiting with each other. Maybe you've got grandma and you've got the grandchild and you like, like it's, it is relational by its very nature if, if we've helped people to be in healthy relationships. Most uh, I think the nature of Christianity itself is built on the foundation of relationships. I think that we see the most healthy relationship demonstrated within the Trinity. I mean, that's the ultimate relational example. Now, it's unattainable for us. We can't even, we can't even describe the Trinity in, in, like in coherent terms, and yet we know that that's the most healthy relationship that's beyond conceivable. We also know that um, relationship is so important to God that he sent his son to die in our place so we could live in relationship with him. That's what Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians 5. He said, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now that's pretty powerful, isn't it? God sent Jesus so that we could be reconciled to him and then on the heels of that, the result of that is he's given us that same ministry of reconciliation to continue to bring people into relationship with him. And I think, by the way, the byproduct of living that way of this ministry of reconciliation is we don't just bring people into reconciliation with God, we bring them into reconciliation with one another. 
it, think about it like the cross, right? That's what redemption does for us. It reconciles us to God, but it also allows us to be reconciled with one another. It's a pretty powerful image. He goes on that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore God's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. The very language of reconciliation is relationship. Paul said God's given us a ministry of reconciliation. I think it's fair to say that discipleship is most effective in the context of relationships, and healthy relationships should come more naturally in the smaller church context. The rest of the things I want to share all kind of flow out of that relational nature of discipleship. So if you disagree with that presupposition, You've got a long few minutes ahead, but it's okay. Just hang in there with me. Um, because of the close-knit relationships in smaller churches, intergenerational discipleship is a natural fit for the smaller church. Smaller churches, at least in my experience, and that's what I've been part of almost all my life. My dad pastored small free will Baptist churches. He was always bivocational, at least bivocational, sometimes more than that. Um, there was a short period of life where my wife and I attended a larger church, but, but most of my life has been in smaller churches. And, and here's what I've noticed is that um, most of them still tend to have two or three, maybe sometimes four generations in that room worshiping together. And if you're, if you're a smaller church and don't have a proper children's church, or maybe their kids are in the room part of the time, there might really be four generations sitting in that room while they sing together, or while they hear scripture read together, or while they pray together, while the offering plate passes, whatever it is, right? If, even if they're not all there during the sermon, it, it, you might have as many as four, and I guess theoretically a fifth generation possibly, but, it, but certainly it's not uncommon to have three or four. I think by and, all, by and large, I think it's a good thing. I think it also leads naturally to a very biblical model of discipleship. There are several descriptions of discipleship in Scripture, and intergenerational seems to be the most normative description. This is what Deuteronomy 6 describes. We read earlier. It's what Paul describes when he tells, when he tells Timothy to take the things that, that he had taught Timothy and to teach them to others who can then teach them, right? That's that is intergenerational. He didn't specify the generations, but that's essentially what that is. And then Paul tells Titus to teach the older women who can teach the younger women. Gosh, what does that sound like? Oh, yes, intergenerational discipleship. Now, in those cases, it's not even necessarily familial. It's not even necessarily Deuteronomy 6 of a, of a father and mother teaching their sons and daughters. This may be, you know, some grandparents in your church whose grandchildren live hundreds of miles away, but boy, they love kids. Or there's a teenager there who really needs a father figure who that granddad can sort of bring into the fold a little bit and teach, right? No relation by blood, and yet what a great intergenerational relationship that's much easier to identify in a smaller church. If you've got a thousand people in the room, it's going to be much harder to put those people together. But in your room of 20, 50, 100 people, it, you know those people. I, some of you are thinking right now, oh yeah, I know, I know who he's talking about. He's never been to my church and he know, I know who he's talking about. Like some of you know, 
the smaller church is basically designed for this. The next principle is you can make disciples without a program. I know we think we got to have a program for everything. And look, I'm a program guy because I get distracted and I get disoriented and I get, I'm all over the map. I need a program. I get that. But you don't have to have a formal program to make disciples. Uh, again, if the relationship component is so important, it, it lessens the importance of the programmatic side. Now, I'm not saying that there doesn't need to be a programmatic side. There needs to be something because, remember, they're structured. We have to teach. Jesus told us some things we need to teach. But that doesn't mean that we have to have a curriculum, a bound book of curriculum, and a scheduled class time. Right? It can still be relational and informal. It can still be without a program and be effective. I love programs. They give me comfort. I know there's a plan. I need a plan. My wife knows this. I've got to have some kind of, I've got to, you should have seen the notebook I'm making notes for this thing in, right? Like it's just page after page after. And, and, and you know, you look at it and you say, you're fisting to type that in. Why are you writing it down? I have to write it down. Leave it alone. I have to write, like I need a plan. I'm not anti-program. But the disciple you're leading needs a relationship with a more mature disciple. He needs to see that Christian life modeled before him. He needs a person more than he needs a program. Which, you know, what he needs is a mentor. And that's the next principle, right? Mentoring is better than curriculum. Again, Randall House invited me. Ron personally asked me to do this. And I'm, I, I will sing the praises of Randall House in D6. I believe in it. That being said, as important as good curriculum is, mentorship is more important. I'm not anti-curriculum. Same reasons I'm not anti-program. But sometimes a formal curriculum in a smaller church causes more problems than it solves. Here, here's what I mean by that. I know a guy who pastors a smaller church. It's a little larger than the one I serve, but it's not a large church by any means. I can't remember, 20, 25 years ago, he told me about his church adopting this discipleship plan, this program that had been promoted by Rick Warren and the Purpose Driven Church. Now, let me stop right here. I'm not offering any commentary on Rick Warren or the Purpose Driven Church. You can love him. You can hate him. I do not care. That's not the point. So let's move on. Okay. Um, it's just an illustration of story. Warren had developed a discipleship curriculum based or a, a that he called CLASS, and CLASS stands, it's an acronym, I forget what it stands for, it doesn't really matter for, for these purposes. So this friend, his church adopted this process, and by the way, this, that program, like if we don't put Rick Warren's name next to it, it's not bad. It's really not bad. It, it, it follows a, a logical path where you bring people in, you integrate them into the church through membership, and you talk about what's, in, what's distinctive about your church and important about membership and all these things. Like, that's a good thing. You move on to mature. You help them mature in the Christian life, help them find their place of ministry, help them find their place of mission, right? That's a, that's a great path, and it's easy to remember. It's on a baseball diamond. We can picture it. Like, it's, it's wonderful. Here's the problem is that... Um, his church, he implemented this thing, and for the first year or two, everybody in his church, they went through the process. They went through all the classes. They went through the process. And about year two, year three, 
because it's a smaller church, he doesn't have this constant inflow of people, right? And so he ran out of people to take to the thing. Year two, year three, he's scheduling classes that nobody's coming to. Not because nobody cares, but they've already done it. And this program actually depressed his church. It discouraged them. That first year, it really encouraged them. But after that, they hated it because it reminded them of how small they were and we're just, we're so weak and we can't even keep this program going and these classes and it was just demoralizing. And this, this program hurt them more than it helped them. However, if they had relied on these same principles but done it in an informal mentorship context, a relational context, man, that's powerful. And they would have stuck with it indefinitely. The disciple, in a, well, in a small church context, it's just not practical to implement a discipleship curriculum or a process and expect to be able to use it indefinitely. You just can't do it. Everybody gets through it and you're done. But mentorship can go on and on and on. A mentoring relationship continues to grow. It continues to progress. The disciple grows and progresses. They move along together. The disciple can then become a mentor for someone else because he's had that modeled for him. By the way, isn't that the point of discipleship? That the disciple is now making disciples? That's uh, one of these books up here, a book called Multiply by Francis Chan. It's several years old now. And again, I'm not making commentary on Francis Chan. You can love him or hate him. I do not care. It's an incredibly good book for discipleship. And one of the first things it does, it makes sure that the person's a Christian. And then it, from the very beginning, it's teaching them that these things we're doing, be getting ready because here in a little while you're going to be doing this with somebody else. Like that's part of its foundation. All right, the last principle I want to share. Again, based on my experience and observation, here it is. Sunday preaching is not discipleship, except in the smaller church. So if you're in a church of... 500 people, 1,000 people. You have a pastor, a preacher standing there preaching, and he's delivering a wonderful biblical message. I'm not saying that people can't learn from it, but they may not have ever actually met that guy. He doesn't know what's going on in their life. He doesn't know that this person in their household is sick or that they've just lost this loved one or that the husband just lost his job or that they're struggling with this kind. It doesn't. He doesn't know any of that. And I'm not criticizing him. He can't. He's got a thousand people in the room. He can't know that about everybody. In a larger church, Sunday preaching cannot practically be discipleship. If if we're working under the assumption that discipleship is inherently relational, large church preaching may be great preaching, but it cannot be discipleship. However, in a small church... You can know exactly what's going on in somebody. I, I can tell you, uh, if we could make a list on the thing of, my, of all of my church members, I can tell you with a certain amount of, uh, a degree of certainty about exactly what's going on in their life, what they're struggling with. Sometimes even things they've not told me because I know them, right? And I know that when they've started acting this way or talking this way, that means something. Now, I've been there 11 years. Some of that comes with time. Which, by the way, that's a whole other, we could do a whole seminar about pastors hanging in there in a church for a length of time, but that's a whole other thing. But anyway, but so 
but, but, there's, but there's relationship. So I can teach and preach in a certain way that they can learn and they can feel the relational part of that, that, that they couldn't if they were one of a thousand people in the room. One of the most significant differences between larger and smaller churches is the relationship the preacher can have with the congregation. The shepherd of the smaller flock tends to better know his sheep. It really is that simple. Okay, I want to close. I'm going to close by telling you just a little bit about the ministry where God's placed me. I am just about out of time, but we're going to do this. It'll be okay. I have the privilege to serve as the pastor of a small church in a mid-sized city in central Texas. I love it there. I've come to love the community. I love the people in our church. We've been through some good stuff. We've been through some hard stuff. You do that in 11 years or more. Um, uh, in many ways, it's been incredibly frustrating. We've tried so many things to reach out to the community. We've tried this and that and programs and whatever, right? And we've tried all kinds of things. But the end result, we're still this small church on a busy street in our central Texas mid-sized city. Um, in all fairness, though, I don't think I could pastor a large church. I think if God really did something big and blew this thing up big, I think I would have to hand it over to somebody else. I'm not wired that way. But that's okay. Uh, I'd like to find out, but that's what I think. Okay, over the last 11, <laughs> over the last 11 years, the most fulfilling parts of my ministry have not come directly from my duties as pastor. The most fulfilling parts, I love to preach and teach, but that's not been the most fulfilling. Now, there have been seasons where it was, but by and large, that's not been the big thing for me. Here's, it's not where I've seen the most fruit. There are three areas that have been most fulfilled in ministry. On a couple of occasions, God's given me the opportunity to disciple young men who felt like God may have been calling them into the ministry. We met regularly, we read books together, we studied scripture together, we talked practical nuts and bolts stuff about church. And I was very honest with them and open with them and transparent about what it's like to lead in a small church. Because if most churches are that 75 people and below, if most churches are that, statistically the odds are a pastor's gonna serve in a small church at least part of his ministry. And maybe not 100%, but most will. And these guys would, right? And so, so I was just open with them about those things. And one of those men, in fact, he was later called to be the youth minister of another church in our community. And I hated to see him leave our fellowship, but I felt like we were sending him off into the ministry. It was a big deal. And it was incredible. We're still friends. It was incredibly fulfilling to get to play a role in this guy going on to do much bigger things than I'm doing. A little jealous. I'm not going to lie to you, right? But, it, but it's still, I'm proud of him. The second Ministry is a men's group that I have the privilege to help lead. We meet at New Beginnings at my church, but the men did not all attend our church. In fact, they come from a, a total of four different churches in our town. And, and we don't even have the largest representation in the room. But together, we study the Bible, we read and discuss books, we talk about the issues that we face, we encourage one another like we are doing discipleship in an unconventional way for an individual local church. But, but here's the thing, a couple of those guys are part of a, a really large church in town. They can't just have a group like that in their church because they're 
pretty tightly controlling of the groups and the message of the church and the whatever, right? But it's just us. I know, I, I know what's going on. It's relational. I can pull those guys in and we can just do what we do, right? Okay, the third is on at least two occasions, churches in our district association searching for a pastor reached out and asked for my assistance. Both are smaller churches, and I was able to meet with the church, help guide them in the process of their pastoral search. And then when they called a new pastor, I was able to spend time with him, introduce him to the community, introduce him to some people around, right? Which, by the way, is a byproduct of being there 11 years. Uh, get, to, get to actually feed in him. This is his first pastorate. So we get to do some interesting things, right? And he gets to learn, and I get to learn, and I'm encouraged by the things he's doing. This is all good. My whole point is that all three of these are forms of discipleship. They don't look like I expected them to look. I did not plan them. I did not ask for them. But I think they're all deeply biblical. They're rooted in relationships. They're bringing life change into the ones who are being discipled, and they're changing me. And every one of them is able to be replicated. And that's what discipleship is supposed to look like in the first place.